Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest today is Abel Keel, and our topic is life of loss of a wife and child to suicide and premature birth. Abel Keel is the author of the memoir, Room for Two. Room for Two is based on Abel's marriage to his first wife, Krista. In November of 2001, Krista took her own life. At the time Krista shot herself, she was seven months pregnant with the couple's first child. Abel's daughter, Hope, was born two months premature the, um, the day Krista died. Baby Hope lived for nine days. In February of 2003, Abel married Juliana and is currently the father of two boys and a girl. Abel is a writer, editor, and political columnist. His previous fiction and poetry have been published in Rough Draft and Metaphor and Strong Verse. Welcome to the show, Abel. Dr. Gloria, Dr. Hardy, thanks for having me on the show today. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, I just found your book very compelling. By the way, it was also very lovely. I, I really liked the picture you had on the front. Um, and... Uh, the title, A Room for, Room for Two. How did you come up with that title? Oh, well, you know, it was actually, uh, it was, that was actually the hardest part of the book, was coming up with the uh, uh, title for it. And uh, there's actually a phrase in the book where, or there's a point in the book where I'm, I'm, uh, I'm dating Juliana, and I realize that in order to kind of move on, I have to kind of make room for two people in my heart. And so that's really what the, what the that's kind of the phrase that stuck out one day when I was rereading the uh, book, trying to think of uh, a title and thought it was kind of uh, appropriate because the book's really about me moving on from the death of my wife and daughter to, you know, forming a, you know, trying to, to uh, move on and form a new, a new relationship with someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's very, very interesting, and we'll get on to that. Could you tell our audience a little bit about what happened and uh, with Krista? Yeah, what happened was is... Uh, is um, Back in November of 2001, um, I came home um, to our apartment and uh, called out for her, basically, and just kind of, you know, was wondering what was up, what was going on with her, and I heard a gunshot in our bedroom and ran back there and found out she had shot herself in the head. Wow, and you called uh, as you came in the door and said hello, right? And then, so she knew you were there. Right, yeah, I I opened the door and came in and called out for her, and it was really kind of weird because the whole apartment was dark and quiet, like nobody had ever... You know, like no one had been there all day, and which was, you know, I was kind of, you know, going up to the apartment. Something just didn't seem right, and so I, you know, I called out for her, and uh, twice actually, and it was after the second time I heard the the uh, gunshot. And ran into the bedroom, and there she was. Yep, there she was on the floor. And, and at it, that point, did you know that she was dead? Um, I didn't know if she was. I mean, I just. There was so much stuff going through my mind at the time. I didn't know exactly what had happened. I knew mm-hmm. I had heard a gunshot, right? But you know, I didn't know. I, I just, you know, I didn't know what had happened when I looked at her. I didn't think she was dead, and mm-hmm. I didn't even know she had really even shot herself at first. And it was just kind of a weird thing. And it was just. It took maybe fifteen or twenty seconds before I really realized what had happened. And then uh, you kind of froze, right? Yeah. And then you yeah. called nine one one, and yeah. Well, you know, you'd think that you know that as soon as you realize what what you know what would have happened, uh, you know, you'd be there doing CPR and you know doing all these heroic things. And I just kind of froze. I mean, I grabbed the phone and called nine one one, and then after that, I was just kind of you know I didn't really know what to do. It was I was so I guess shocked. I guess that and that's understandable not to know, and and how terrifying to realize that your daughter 
is also she's also pregnant with your daughter. Yeah, and you know, so I have all these things going through my mind. It's not just you know, she is is my wife going to be okay? Is is my unborn daughter going to mm-hmm. be okay? And then the, and then they came and and took her away. And I I was thinking how shocking for you to realize at one point that you were under suspicion. Yeah, and I you know I I guess it's, it's kind of shocking, but it's probably kind of routine you know that you know the detective was very honest with me you know he said you know we have a dead body here you know my standard procedure is to treat this as a murder unless it's shown otherwise and so you know i I guess i was too shocked with all the other stuff that had gone on for that to really kind of sink in really (laughs) but it was you know it's just you know but just you know it was just kind of just uh, another thing and in my mind i remember sitting there looking at the detective and just thinking this isn't real this isn't really happening Mm -hmm. you know this is where i wake up and Mm And also, you just don't think of a woman, and it does happen. But we don't—you don't think of a woman being seven months pregnant and killing herself. Yeah, I mean, you know, no. you kind of think of her protecting her baby, even though now I know because you've educated me that these things do happen. Yeah, and uh, I, I think it's pretty rare. And I've done a lot—you know—I've done a lot of. I think it's very rare that uh, we did a little research on it, and I think it's very rare that a pregnant woman, you know, would kill herself. It's a very low uh, number of people that do that. In fact. She may one, be one of the very handful. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I've never found a, another case, and maybe you guys have, but in my research I've never found another example of this happening. Yeah. Wow. I guess, I guess what was really shocking to me about it was not only hearing it, but, I mean, you know, I kept the, I kept the gun in a gun case. Mm-hmm. So it was always under lock and key. The only time it was out is if I was taking it shooting or doing something like that. So this wasn't just a gun that was lying in a drawer somewhere in the open. It was, you know, right. it was so it was for shooting play. and... Hunting and those kind of things, right? Or just a shoot, going to a shooting range? Yeah, yeah. We we go to, to a shooting range a couple times a, a couple times a year and shoot the gun. So she was mm-hmm. familiar on how to uh, use the gun. So Chris had actually gone with you for recreation to use. Uh-huh. The gun. Yeah. yeah. And, and I've got to say, I mean, I live in Manhattan, but a lot of people have guns in their house and they're under lock and key, and they have them for shooting, like the shooting range or hunting. Or protection. Or protection, but most of them don't use them. Hopefully, don't have to use it for that. Oh, hopefully they don't. (laughs) (laughs) So um, let's go on a little bit. We're at the hospital now, and they've taken her. Did you ride in the ambulance? No, no. They they uh, kept me back. I don't even know. I mean, even thinking about it, I couldn't remember how much time it was between the time that they took her body and to to rescue the baby in the ambulance and the time that I uh, got there was probably maybe a half hour or an hour. So. I had no clue what was going on when I got to the hospital. Yeah, you must have been in a huge amount of shock. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So you got to the hospital, and then what happened? And they put me in. And, and you didn't know that she was dead then, did you? Or well, did you no, I knew, I knew that uh, Krista was dead. Uh, you the, they, they, had, they, had, they had told me that she was dead, but, they, but then as soon as they realized that there, there might be a chance they could save the baby, they kind of went into full get the body out of here mode, and they kind of push, pushed me off into a corner of the apartment and took the body to the hospital. Mm. And so when I got to the hospital, I mean, I actually thought my daughter was going to be dead. I was not expecting the doctor mm. to, to, to uh, come in and say, well, she's alive. Even though she's on a respirator and all kinds of life support, I was expecting him to come in and say, well, you're, uh, you know, your daughter didn't get here in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so once I was put in this, in this room, just kind of sitting there waiting, the doctor came in. Um, just kind of explained to me that he did, you know, he had performed this emergency surgery and that my baby was alive. Um, he couldn't give me a long-term prognosis, but he just said that that, uh, that they were kind of cleaning her up and getting her ready, and I could go see her. So. And is that when you named her Hope? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I love I, that. When when I first saw her, when they took me, I don't know, again, I don't, you know, 
know, the time on this 15, 20 minutes later. They took me back to the ICU, and she was there. And I was kind of talking to a nurse, and the nurse just kind of asked if I had a name. And the name Hope was what Krista had wanted to uh, a name her. And then, you know, mm-hmm. and I think I'd had some other name in, in my mind. And so I'm there. I can name the kid. And the only name that was coming in, into my mind was Hope. So that's, mm-hmm, which that's is so there. appropriate for the situation. Yeah. You know, I just want to say something uh, while we're talking about this. In reading the book, you loved uh, Krista so much. That comes through so much in the book, your relationship. You dated her for years. You uh, were married to her for how long? Um, almost three years. Almost three years. A month shy of three years, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just want our audience to know that you really had a very loving relationship with her. Yeah, and it was a good marriage right until the kind of surprise ending there. For the most part, it had really been a good yeah. marriage. Well, certainly everyone has their moments. And I, and I also uh, was thinking about, you know, Heidi and I had looked at this material on, on loss, and I was interested in the fact that she shot herself in November, and one of the things they're talking about is light therapy. Who? Oh. Uh, Krista. You know, I was thinking that she was lacking in light yeah, at that time. Oh, I see. Sunlight. Right. Natural light. Mm-hmm. And how important it is. They say, yeah. they say you should have 20 minutes of sunlight a day in your life, either natural or, like you said, by a lamp. Yeah. And I, and I was thinking, did you, did you uh, feel like it was depression that uh, drove her to take her life? Um, I mean, you know, it's been, gosh, what has it been, six years now, I guess, since this has happened, and I still, you know, I still don't have a definitive answer. I mean, I would probably lean that way, but, I mean, I really don't have an answer as to what was going through her mind or what, you know, what affliction she was suffering from. I, th- I mean, all the, all the symptoms kind of add up to depression. Uh, so, Abel, did you see signs as her pregnancy increased? Did you see her change and did you see signs of yeah. depression or anything? And what, what did that look like? Well, well, her whole personality changed as the pregnancy uh, um, uh, got on. At first, you know, she, the first couple months, there were, I didn't see really a big change. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then as the pregnancy got on, she, you know, she... You know, she stopped caring about herself. She always wanted to make herself look nice and pretty. She was always big into, you know, you know, you know, making sure when she went out she was wearing, you know, just some nice clothes or something. You know, she, you know, she'd never go to the store in sweats, for example. You know, it always mm-hmm. be, you know, she always make sure she was wearing something nice and, and you know, and she and she just stopped caring for herself. Um, you know, for the most part, she was a really responsible person the entire time I know her. I knew her, and then out of, out, then out of the blue one day, she just quit her job. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, with no notice to the employer, no notice to me. I just. You know, just found out, you know, she just told me one day, she goes, yeah, I've quit my job, I'm not going back to work. And so it was just kind of this slow uh, uh, progression of things. And, I mean, I I was kind of worried about her, but, you know, I talked to people at work, for example, and say, man, you know, my wife is just doing all this weird stuff. And, you know, I talked to the other guys at work, and they'd say, oh, well, when my wife was pregnant, she was like a different person. And, Mm -hmm. you know, 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 they'd give me stories like that. So it kind of threw me off. I wasn't really thinking that there was something really wrong with her. I just thought, oh, this is what happens when she gets pregnant. Right, of course. And And, and as Heidi and I have said, and you have said also, the chances of somebody killing themselves when they're pregnant are very minimal. Yeah, so no, who would have, you know, who would be right away saying, wow, right. you, you ought to watch that this? Would, that would be the end. And, and it's interesting because it just shows how much her, chem- her body chemistry was changing and that there was a chemical imbalance that obviously no one could have known about. Yeah. Um, so tell us, we've got Hope there, and the doctor comes in and says, um, we've got this baby, do you want to see her? And it's very poignant. I would suggest that our audience get your book to read about. I mean, we couldn't even begin to talk on the show about how, you know, seeing her and 
and your dad's a photographer wanting to take some pictures and, you know, um, actually seeing your little baby for the first time. Can you can you remember that feeling? Did you get that dad feeling? And Yeah, yeah, it was weird. I mean, even though, you know, I guess I was kind of pictured seeing my daughter for the first time a bit differently, there was still just that unbelievable love and just wanting her to be okay and just, you know, mm-hmm. wanting her to know that I was there. I know you talk about, you know, putting her little fingers around you. I mean, her little fingers around your finger, you know, how she didn't respond like most babies would. Yeah. But, you know, that, that she wasn't responsive at all, right? Yeah, yeah. She was, yeah, I mean, it was probably a combination of, you know, just all the trauma she had gone through and the drugs they had her on. But, yeah, yeah the whole time that she was alive, she wasn't responsive. I never saw her open her eyes, never saw her yawn, never saw her move voluntarily. It was all just, she was just kind of lying there the entire time. And but she, she looks like a perfect little baby, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Basically, yeah, I mean, you know, she was small. I think she was like two pounds, six mm-hmm. ounces, or something like that, which is right for the age that she was. Right. But, but yeah, but I mean, physically, aside from being small, she was fine. You know, ten fingers, mm-hmm. ten toes, pink mm-hmm. skin. You know, ha- a big mop. You know, big mop, mop of hair on her uh, head. I mean, she looked fine. Right. And you held her too. Yeah, yeah. I got several chances during her 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 uh, her uh, life to uh, hold her. Usually, she was hooked up to monitors, so it was kind of awkward. But you know, I got to hold her for periods of time. Uh, and so the doctor did a brain scan and told you there were dark spots, and which meant that there was brain damage, bleeding in the brain. And then I remember um, you said in the book that then you got another one, even though people wondered why, another brain scan, because you wanted to make sure. Yeah, when, yeah, when I finally made the decision to remove her from uh, life support, I told my family that's what I was going to go to the hospital and do, so they all came with me. And I just still couldn't bring myself to do it. I still wanted to say, well, I just want to make sure. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I had the doctors do another scan. I could tell that the doctor really was like, this is a waste of time, but he did it anyway. And, you know, and it actually showed the, you know, that the, that the spots, that the, that the blood on her brain and stuff was actually getting worse. It wasn't getting better. And, and, you know, even though it was a hard decision to want to take her off life support, it almost made the decision just a tiny bit easier knowing that, you know, she wasn't getting better and that there wasn't going to be a chance for her to get better. So in between, you buried a wife... And then um, you had a funeral for Krista. Yeah, I had a funeral for uh, uh, Krista, and then uh, then two or three days later, I took Hope off life support. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Uh, and now after, and you had a little a little funeral for um, Hope, and she was buried with Krista, right? Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So tell us, do you does all this trauma happen to you? Do you remember going home? How how was that? Let's talk a little bit about. Was there a stigma because of it was suicide? Yeah, I think it was kind of like an unspoken stigma. It's just like, you know, people didn't know what to say to me. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, like, you know, I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to to uh, to uh, comfort someone anyway that's, you know, you know, that's lost someone that they love. But, you know, at least, you know, if, if the person's older, for example, you can say, well, they had a good life, you know, things like that. You know, you know, you can say, hey, look, you know, look at all this time you got to spend with them or, you know, I don't know, you can or, you know, maybe if they were suffering from some horrible you know, disease, you can say, well, maybe, you know, they aren't in pain anymore or something like that. And I just felt like nobody, and not and not that I blame people for acting this way because I probably would have acted the same way, but it's just like nobody knew what to say to me at all. And you know? did they acknowledge, Abel, did they acknowledge that you had lost a daughter? Um, because some people don't, I've heard people on the show say, you know, because our daughter wasn't full term, people really didn't acknowledge that loss. Um, I Yeah, I think everybody did. I can't think of an Very example good. where they didn't. That's good to know. But, uh, but you know, there was still this kind of this silent kind of what do I say to Abel kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and looking back, I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't have known what to say either. So, What about 
you're uh, Krista shooting herself and when she was pregnant. Were you basically, angry with Basically her? killing your daughter. Yeah. yeah. what she did to a certain extent. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's a fair assessment. And do you identify with that, uh, Heidi, saying that, that basically... She killed your daughter. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for her doing that, I think, you know, Hope would have been born in the normal way and been fine. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not the easiest thing to say, but I would agree that, yeah, her actions basically killed my daughter. Mm-hmm. And and what about your anger? Were you feeling angry? Um, I, yeah, after, after finally, after Hope's funeral, and finally, you know, things just kind of calmed down a tiny bit, you know, where, I don't know, I just didn't feel like, you know, I mean, it, I guess the one thing about having hope alive, it kind of just kept me distracted from feeling anything toward uh, uh, um, toward Krista because I was so wrapped up in hope and, you know, is she going to be okay? What's going on with her? And so after Hope's funeral, then that's when the real feelings of anger and just being furious at Krista really set in. Mm-hmm. And how did you deal with that for our audience? Because I will tell you, we have some very angry people out there for, for multiple reasons. Um, it's How did I deal with it? It was more really... Um, it was, you know, uh, probably a lot of, you know, swearing under my breath and, you know, just, you know, just, you know, just being mad, I mean, just being mad at her and just, re- you know, just releasing that anger in a, in, in a private setting where I could just yell or scream at the walls or, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, just feel angry. I don't, it was just, it was just something I just did in a private, in the book, like, I think, I think, I think the first time it really explodes, I... Just you know, I get back in in my car, and I just have this thing where I just kind of just kind of yell and just tell her how much I hate her, and just mm-hmm. how uh, just how upset that I am, and and you know, even though that didn't really get rid of the anger altogether, it really made me feel better for about ten minutes. So. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Abel. So, do you feel like you were able to work through the anger towards Krista, or are you still angry at Krista today? Oh, I'm not angry at her anymore. I think so. You worked. You were able to work through that. Yes, yes, I was able to work through it. I think you know it wasn't a, it wasn't anything that happened overnight. And mm-hmm. um, if you read the book, it kind of chronicles a, a little bit of my uh, a journey about that, just how I kind of gave reached a point where I could forgive her for what she had done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's a, a good thing that people want to get the book and read about how Abel worked through his anger. I've got, I know one of the things that you did, which I, I think is very interesting, because when we talk to men, we often find that men are doers, and they want to do something, and that's what helps them. And you moved into an old house that Krista had liked, and you two had talked about fixing up, and Spent a lot of time working on it, right? Yeah, yeah. That took about two months of my life after uh, after after their death, just fixing up this house and making it livable. And I mean, it was good in a, a lot of ways because I think it just gave me something to do. It kind of distracted me from what was going on. I mean, you know, I'd go to work during the day and come home at night and work for another five or six hours on the house and just go to bed exhausted. And well, well it was kind of a metaphor for your life, Abel. Because I'm thinking of this broken down house which was kind of what you were going through at that point, and then you put it, you, you created something beautiful and put it back together again. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great metaphor for my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I mean, it's just, you know, it's just, you know, getting over the anger associated with, with what she had done, you know, it didn't, you know, it didn't happen in months. I think, it, you know, I think by the time I reached the end of the book, which is a year after she died, I was finally, I think I reached a point where I could finally say it was, I had forgiven her and was at peace with that with uh, what happened. But when know, did you start writing the book? Yeah, um, I started it probably. This would have been about 2003. So about two years after everything happened is when I started writing it. Mm-hmm. My, uh, my, so do you uh, think that p- writing the book was helpful? 
I think it was in a lot of ways. Um, I know. I think just getting that first draft out and just putting the whole story down, which was a lot longer than the than the uh, book version, but just putting all my feelings out was kind of like therapy, I guess. I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. I never went and thought anybody about what had happened. But I thought it was interesting in the book when your mom wanted you to go into therapy and you said, "No, I want to talk to somebody who's had this happen to them." But yeah. there isn't anyone. And I was thinking, what a great thing for you to come on the show, Abel, because. If there's anybody who's had any of these things happen to them, they're going to be able to hear you talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just helpful to know that somebody has gone through something similar. I know, like, with with my book, I've got a bunch of emails from um, um, from people who have lost their spouse, and most of them haven't lost them to a suicide, but they can still read the book, and they can still say, you know, I felt the same way. I still had these same feelings. I still didn't know what to do here and what, what to do there. And so even though they may not have had the exact same thing happen, they could still relate in a lot of ways to what I was going through. Right. And talk about being a, a widower. I, I thought that was so interesting because Heidi was saying that the 9-11 widows don't even want to be called that. Right, because I work with the 9-11 widows, and most of them are in their 20s and 30s. And they're like, you know, we don't like the word widow because a widow is someone that's 80 years old. Yeah, and that was the problem I was facing is that, you know, I was, tw- I was a 26-year-old widower. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had friends that weren't even married yet. Right. And I'm sitting here thinking, this isn't something that happens to people in their 20s. You know, this is something that happens to people, you know, 50s, 60s and on. And a lot of the grief, li- what do you call it, grief? The literature but, out there. Yeah. I mean, they're yes. all directed towards older people. It is, you're right. And and, and, I've, and, I, and I mean, there, there was a point for a while there I felt completely isolated. Cause I felt like, you know, I mean, I just felt like I was the only young widower on the planet, and the only and the only one that had been through what you'd been through, and you were one of the only ones. Yeah, and the, it's, just like, it's like there was no one to reach out to. You know, I, right. I you know I go I go to the to the uh, bookstores and try to find books and stuff, and there was just nothing out there. I do Google searches late at night, and you know, and there was mm-hmm. absolutely nothing. I just I just felt like. Gosh, I'm the only person who's ever experienced this. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nobody out there that can help me or understand what I'm going through. So oh. then you started dating after six months, and you got a little flack about that, right? Yeah, yeah. Then you know, so so dating was actually a really good. I think it was kind of like it was a really big step and to start and to start putting my uh, life back together. It was, right. it was really kind of, at least emotionally it was mm-hmm. and then you know but then you know i didn't tell my family because i didn't you know i was thinking well my family's going to be upset that i'm dating mm-hmm. after six months i would have been upset had you know if i was them you know and here i am dating six months later so i kind of kept it under wraps because i was just worried that my family and friends were just going to say you're doing this too soon why are you doing well this? also if you were in the therapy world they'd be saying no 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 but remember the woman we had whose husband was murdered honey i I cannot think of her name right now. She got married after seven months, and she said, I've been married for years. I'm so happy. And people told me, oh, no, you know, well, we it's be doing the whole, that. And it happens in grief in every area. It's the whole passing judgment on people. People want everyone to grieve the same way. And, and who's to say that after six months, dating isn't exactly where you should have been? Yeah. Like you said, it was healing for you. It yeah, was therapeutic and, for you. And, and, and when I started dating at first, it wasn't necessarily to necessarily look for a spouse or look for another long-term relationship it was really just trying to make my life normal again that makes sense and so that's you know that was really the big reason i did it now i got lucky and you know happened to start dating someone that i really liked and you mm-hmm. know ended up marrying and have a wonderful family with but at the you know really my initial forays into dating was just like this is just trying to make my life normal and trying to have interaction. yeah you're a 26 year old guy yeah, yeah right now now my age are doing so, and you got you got married again. Mm-hmm. I know, and you had three children. I just wanted to know when your wife became pregnant again. The, your not your second wife became pregnant. Did you have anxiety and worry that she was going to become depressed? 
Um, or I not really. Not necess- I wasn't necessarily worried about her becoming depressed, but I was more worried, I guess, about something going wrong with the pregnancy. Mm-hmm. You know, what you know, some kind of complication or mis. You know, I was more losing another about- baby. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, and that, that you know, I wasn't. I, I I knew her well enough that I, I felt like you know, and I was always on edge. As she, if you talk to her, she'll say, "Yeah, you know, he was always asking me how I was doing. If I just happened to have one little bad day, you know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was like, do we need to go see someone? You know, and you know, kind of kind of made life a little bit unbearable for her, probably in a way. But uh, but you know, she was understanding about that. But yeah, you know, it was really I was more worried about losing another baby, not not so much about my wife herself again or becoming depressed it was really just don't lose the baby don't lose the baby right now that's interesting because you know you're really dealing with the fact i know that you said talked about uh going to church and having a father's day and how you felt so badly before you got married um and so you really you know had to deal with losing a child mm-hmm. yeah and and now you're having another child and do you remember um what was your thought when that baby was born and you held your new baby? And what was the baby? Was it a boy or a girl? It was a boy. We had two boys, and then we just had the girl. Uh, so did you think of hope when you were holding your new baby? Um, um, yeah, in a way I did, but in a way I was just so grateful that, you know, that he was here and he was healthy and that mom was doing good. And so, you know, I mean, yes, I did, th- I did briefly think about her, but I was just so happy to Finally, right. just have you know a child that you know that was that that was so healthy and you know was normal, and the doctors were saying, "Oh, this is a big, healthy baby." You know, that just mm-hmm. felt so good. That must be a relief. I wanted to say that this is a beautiful book, and I assume you can get it through Amazon. You can also go to Abel's website. Do you want to give your website, Abel? Yeah, yeah, it's abelkeo.com. That's a b e l k e o g h dot com, and you can there's uh, links to places that you can buy the book there, and you can also read the first chapter of the book on my website as well. Oh, that's great. So you can read Room for Two, the first chapter, and that should inspire you to want to buy it. It's a wonderful book. It's a, it's a beautiful book, and it's a very interesting story and very compelling. Well, uh, Abel, I wanted to talk about a couple of things because uh, um, you're pretty remarkable to have come through this the way you have, to not have a lot of rage and anger, which can really hold people back. But could you talk a little bit about Exercise. I know you're. You started running, right? Right. Yeah, I've been running for about seven years now, and I actually started running a year before Krista died. It's mostly just to lose weight. I came home one day and looked in the mirror and just said, "Oh, this is awful." <laughs> you know, um, you know, just overweight and stuff. So I started running, and um, it actually turned out to be a really good thing because then after she died, uh, running really was a way for me just to kind of, I don't know, you know. Uh, you know, I'd get up like at five o'clock in the in the uh, morning and go outside and run, you know, four miles or so. And it was just really a way for me to kind of focus my thoughts on, you know, on maybe her or you know maybe any sadness I was feeling. And I could have it all out and done by the time I was done running. And so then, you know, as I went to work and went about the other things I had to, to uh, do that day, I was able to get. Any, I was really able to get a lot of feelings of anger or sadness or something kind of out on that run. And then, you know, just kind of be able to kind of load and make it through uh, another day without too many problems. So exercise, yeah. Yeah, and, I think and exercise, getting those endorphins going is so important. Yeah. And and maybe for for our folks out there, it's just walking around the block the first time. You were into running before you started, right? Yeah. You know, well, after yeah. she died. Yeah, I mean, just for exercise, it's, it's whatever people enjoy doing. If you enjoy riding your bike, then go do that. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you, exercise shouldn't be a chore. It should be fun. So find something that you, you know, enjoy 
uh, yeah. uh, doing, but I think it's a great way to maybe kind of, you know, relieve some of the feelings that you're... And you were also able to, again, Heidi, we've talked to our guests about compartmentalizing, so you were able to have that as a time when you could be angry or yeah. whatever. Yeah, if, if yeah. I was sad or angry, whatever I was going through that day, I had 30 minutes to kind of get it out, and, you know, if I was really angry, I'd maybe run faster, you know, I was or just something thinking like that. that. And, you know, so then by the time I was done, I was kind of too tired to be angry anymore, and I just could make it through the rest of my day okay. Mm-hmm. Now, what about religion? I know you mentioned that in your book. What uh, what place did that place? Was that helpful to you? Um, it, um, it was helpful in the, in the context that, you know, that I know that I can see Krista again, that I can be with mm-hmm. Hope again, and that we can be together as a family again. And, and just knowing, knowing that um, just kind of maybe patched over the things that I couldn't do myself, you know, that I couldn't do for myself emotionally. It was having this uh, knowledge that we could be together forever. Mm-hmm. It was really kind of um, something that I, uh, that I did find helpful. And, and was that helpful later, or was that helpful right away? Um, it's, it, it was both. You know, it was, it was, uh, you know, was kind of helpful right away, and it's kind of been helpful even to this day. And how about your religious community? Were they helpful, the, the people? Um, yeah, I found them very supportive. Uh, they, again, you know, I ran into the "what do I say to this guy" kind of thing, which I think you know you'd find anywhere. But um, but yeah, no, I felt like you know that you know that the church that I that I was uh, attending and the people there that even if they did, didn't know what to to uh, say to me, if I ever called someone up and said, "Hey, you know, I'm trying to fix this on my house," you know, I'm not sure how to do it. The people would come over and they'd be more than happy to help me, and you know, and they'd always you know they'd always be there just in case. You know, for whatever I needed. I, I love that house thing because it's something a guy can ask other people to come and they could actually do something and just be with you without even saying mm-hmm. anything. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not the most, you know, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a, a lot better at fixing things than I was, but even back then, you know, there were some basic things that maybe I didn't quite know how to do, but there was people in my church that would know how to do them, I'd call them up and say, hey, can you come help me with this? And they'd be just, I mean, they were right there. And, this and, and it also it. made it so you weren't isolated. You brought people into your life so, and they'd help you work and you weren't isolated. Is there anything that anyone said to you that was helpful? Um, no, you know, um, I think not maybe anything that, that they said, but, you know, going back to the house thing or other things, just by being there, you know, mm-hmm. I, I never felt like, that there wasn't anybody I really couldn't approach if if I wanted to and say, hey, (laughs) you know, um, I need help. You know, even if it wasn't, you know, listen to me what I'm going through, but through, you know, just just through friends and, you know, know, I had friends that would just invite me over to uh, dinner for uh, their place, and they did it for months, you know. It was like every Tuesday night or whatever, come over to our place for dinner, you know. I thought that was interesting, and you said how much you enjoyed that, and that's something for people to think about, just inviting someone over. Yeah, and again, it was just having, you know, Putting some normalcy back in my life, you know, mm-hmm. going, you know, going to dinner one, one, once a week with mine and Krista's best friends from college was just it was it was it was just a little you know it was it was a, a routine thing that probably went on for four or five months, but it was so helpful just to know that wow, you know, I don't have to sit alone at home tonight. There's somebody that's going to feed me di- feed me di- dinner tonight and talk to me for a couple hours and you know. Like so reaching out, reaching. Yeah. So if people are out there grieving, people need to reach out and invite them over, and just like you said, putting normalcy back into their life again. But the other thing is, for our folks out there who are grieving, take a risk and go out. When people do invite you, take a risk and go. Yeah, and I mean, and it's it's 
it's sometimes awkward and sometimes hard, but I think in the end it's it's uh, worth it. And I think I, I think I show a couple of experiences there in my book, whether through dating or going out, that has just kind of added this little sense of normalcy that was just kind of I don't know a little life raft to kind of help me just kind of float through one more day. Mm-hmm. So, um, what would be your advice to someone out there who is twenty five years old and has had a spouse die? Um. Don't feel like you're alone, first of all. <laughs> you know, there are, even though you may not know of other people, there are, I mean, I've had several young widows and widowers contact me through my uh, website um, um, since, you know, since the book and since, mm-hmm. and, and since, since the, the uh, site's been out there. But, you know, just know that, you know, you still have, I mean, you're, you know, you're young, you still have an entire life to live. And just because you've happened to tragically lose someone that you love or, you know, a child or a spouse or someone else, there's still so much living that you can do. And you know, and 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 you know, however, however you choose to uh, do that, don't let the grief overcome um, your life to the point where you know, to where you've died too, to where you know you aren't doing the things that you want to do. You can still put your life back together, and you can still have a wonderful life, and still and still be happy. Well. I think that I, I think we'll end the show on that, Abel, because that is an amazing thing. You have been through a tremendous amount with mm-hmm. a loss of a wife and a child, and and to suicide and all the implications out there. You're a real inspiration with your book and and the things that you're doing. And I hope people will uh, go to your blog or your website and uh, read that chapter of your book. And we have um, Abel's book on our blog, thegriefblog.com. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Thanks for having Abel. Me. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.